0: I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. Good morning. How's everybody doing? My name's Stephen. It's nice to meet all of you. Um, If you're you're new to the branch, um, I'm I'm one of the elders and and the lead pastor and primary teaching guy. Um, But we didn't meet for a couple of weeks, and then I was gone for a week, and uh, so I feel like I need to resubmit my resume. Um, We'll do that to the the elders later this week, but it's good to be together. I'm thankful to be back. I'm thankful to be in the rhythms of a new year and just the excitement of being back in this space. And even though it's a little cold in here, uh, we trust that the Spirit of God is in our midst this morning. And so before we dive in, I want to bring a few things to your attention. Um, the first is that family groups are kicking back off, uh, this week. Some of them kicked off this past week, but, uh, we'll get back into the normal rhythm of kind of our church flow, uh, this week. So family groups, college Bible study kicks back off this week, um, And then next Sunday, uh, we have Family Reunion. So if you're new to the branch, you're like, what is a family group? How do I get into one of those? They sound great. Um, Family Reunion is how we do that. And so I invite you to do that. I'll be right here at the Park and Rec. And um, we kind of just have a time to get together, and you'll get to meet all of our family group leaders and kind of get an idea of what we do there. And then the last little announcement here is that our next Next Steps class, which is for those of you who are interested in joining the branch as a church member will be February the 12th, and so we had originally thought we would do one in January, but we're trying to move those to quarterly meetings rather than monthly meetings because they're exhausting, okay? So the next one will be February the 12th, and I'd encourage you to be there, and uh, church membership matters, and uh, we care deeply about that partnership between the church and its members. It's the body of Christ working together in the pursuit of Uh, godliness. And so that's how we do that here at the branch. But we are in Exodus. We are back in Exodus. If you've forgotten, uh, I'm going to give us a little bit of a recap of where we've been. Uh, Again, if you just stumbled into the branch uh, this morning, we've been in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus. Uh, We've even referred to it as the gospel of Exodus as we uh, really begin to think through what does this mean for our uh, life with Christ And uh, today, we are at the Ten Commandments, if you've ever heard of it. Uh, It's Exodus chapter 20. We'll we'll do the first four today, and then we'll pick up uh, in verse 12 uh, next week with the with. Commandments five through ten, but this morning it's all about the vertical commands of how do we view God, how do we obey God? What are who is God, right? And uh, so I think the the biggest thing, just by way of catching us all back up, uh, it's been a while since we've been in Exodus, is just to kind of quickly tell you the story of where where we've been and how did we end up here on the top of this mountain, the mountain of God. And he's now giving his law to his people. And so if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, this will just be a refresher. If you're not, I'd encourage you to catch up. We're only 20 chapters in. We are officially almost halfway through our sermon series on Exodus. So unofficially, officially. Okay? Um, so God's people had been in bondage, right? They've been in bondage for over 400 years, generation after generation, uh, held captive in Egypt. Uh, they've had a, they have had a number of pharaohs. Even the first few verses of uh, chapter one in Exodus, we see the turnover of Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt, uh, and the, the newest king is ruthless. He is uh, the, the, the worst of the worst, right? He is a supreme narcissist. Uh, he is brutal uh, in his approach to the Israelites, uh, God's people, and um, God calls Moses to be the leader of this tribe of misfits uh, to escape, to be released from these chains. And so uh, over a series of ten plagues, Pharaoh finally said, enough is enough. And, uh, except it wasn't enough because then he chases them after God lets them out and then the Red Sea swallows them up. But in the beginning, if you'll remember, this is early on in Exodus, Moses, this is at the burning bush, Moses. God comes to Moses and says, um, here's what I'm calling you to do. And remember, Moses gets real nervous, he doesn't feel like he's the greatest leader, he's got a stuttering thing, and he just doesn't feel confident in himself. And yet God's trying to tell him, your confidence isn't in you, it's in me. And he releases him. And Moses becomes this catalyst for this amazing movement uh, in uh, this period of salvation history. And so the first question that Moses asked God is what? What do I call you? What is your name? Right? And that question, what do I call you, moves into what do we do? Right? And this is where we see the ten plagues. And God tells Moses, you know, to tap your staff in the Nile and it turns to blood. And so lift your hands later and and then they they become victorious in battle. Right? And so what do we do? The next question then Moses asks is, where are we going? If you're calling us out of this place, this is the only place that we've known, where are we going? And now at the top of the mountain of God, the top of Mount Sinai, we get how do we live? How do we live in union with you, God? a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and how do we live in communion with one another? And so in the Ten Commandments, you have what we like to call vertical commandments and horizontal commandments. I'd rather what Jesus called them is love God and what? Love others, right? What are the greatest commandments? The first is to love the Lord your God. The second is to love others like yourself. So that is the Ten Commandments summarized. Now, what Jesus also says, he says all of the commandments of the law. So it's not just ten, right? By the end of it, we get lots and lots and lots and lots of commands. The law of the Lord continues to grow throughout the Old Testament, even in Exodus. But these ten are the foundational elements of God's uh, people. And so it's often known as the Ten Words. This is probably the most widely known portion of Scripture throughout human history. If you were to ask a stranger who'd never heard or never stepped foot in a the church, they've probably heard of the Ten Commandments, uh, even probably more than some of the great narratives of the New Testament. The Ten Commandments is something that human history has always known. Now, it's not something that human history has always embraced, right? We're trying to remove it from schools. We're trying to remove it from courthouses. We're trying to remove it from everywhere that we can because in these Ten Commandments becomes the foundation, really, for all of civilization. Okay? Uh, I don't think it takes a, a rocket scientist to, s- to see that murder is bad. Are we there? Can we agree on that? Okay, good. Well, then the sermon's over, so um, it's good to be back here. But we have these two parts. We have the vertical, or what we call worship, And we have the horizontal, which is what we call mission, love God and love others. So these commands that he gives us are for our good, and it's for the good of others as well, right? If we receive these commands as only individualistic commands, then we've completely missed them because we're not called to live alone. John 14, 15, it's going to be on the screen behind me. I love these words. It says, this is Jesus, he says, if you love me, right? That's a powerful four-letter word. If you love me, you will what? you'll keep my commands. So are the commands important? Yes, they are absolutely important. So my love for God or my love of God is reflected in my obedience to his words. So we say it here a lot, and this is the why we've structured the church the way that we've structured it. This is why we teach the way that we teach, because we believe that more than anything else in the world, the most important thing in our lives is the word of God. It's how we know who we are. It gives us our identity. It gives us our purpose. It gives us mission. It gives us vision. It gives us value. But it also keeps us in alignment with the one who created us. And so that is what we are doing in the Ten Commandments. So God's people, though. Desire to do God's will because they have already been saved. This is the primary point, okay? So if if you don't take notes, this is the only note that's worth taking. But God's people desire to do God's will because they've already been saved, not in order to get salvation or not in order to earn salvation. When we flip that wrong side up, we lose all purpose. We lose all identity, and it doesn't make sense. It becomes running a race on a treadmill where we are never making progress. However, we have already been saved in our response to that miraculous salvation, right? I mean, praise God. I mean, salvation is one of the just most mysterious things on planet earth, right? But because of that salvation, now we, in turn, we obey what God and who God has called us to be. But it's our exclusive worship of the triune God that marks us distinctly as Christians, Okay. It is it is this worship of God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit that makes us who we are as Christians. So, two questions though that we have to ask and we'll ask these along the way. You'll ask them in your family group over the next week or two, but what does the command mean? Okay? So, when we go through the 10 commandments, what does it mean? So, we're going to take them one by one, all right, for the next couple of weeks. But what does it mean? And what does the command teach me about God? All right, so as I've been, in, like Andrew said, I've been working on this for a while because I haven't been here, and when, you, when, you have, when you're not here, you continue to plan ahead and move forward, but the Ten Commandments are not about behavior modification, okay? Sorry, they're not. They're not about do's and don'ts. It's not ten thou shalt nots, even though thou shalt not is in there, okay? These are ten statements about the nature and character of God, plain and simple, To love your neighbor is a declaration of who God is because he's created you to be fully fulfilled in him first, yes, but also in community with others. Not to kill, not to steal, not to cheat. Those are statements about who God is and what he values. He values one another. He values what he's created. But I was meeting with Steve this week, and he... uh, was listening to a podcast that takes these, these Ten Commandments and they, he puts them into a vow structure. These are God's vows to us and our vow to Him, right? At the beginning of this text, which we're going to read in just a minute. But there are also Ten I Am statements, right? In the Gospel of John, you see these amazing statements of Jesus saying, I am the vine, I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. That is what we are getting in the Ten Commandments. What is He saying over and over and over again? I am the God. I am God. And I am worthy of your worship. So what I'd like to do is to reorient, because if you grew up in church like me, it was, the, this is God's naughty list. This is what you're not supposed to do. It's a couple of things that you are supposed to do, but it's mostly a negative list. And yet, when we view it like that, we miss who God is and what he has created us, who he has created, created us to be. So let's read the text. This is Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and we'll come back and look at the commands one by one. Okay, Uh, Exodus 21 through 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It sounds a lot like John 14. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain verse 8 Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God On it you shall do not do any work you or your son or your daughter your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day And made it holy. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time that we can come together uh, in this space and to study your word. I pray that you would uh, remove any barrier or obstruction to us seeing you clearly uh, this morning and just the beauty and the rigor of the Ten Commandments and its impact on our life uh, through Christ. And so I'm grateful that you sent a savior who could perfectly live the law. And, um, and he died in our place. And so I pray now that you would help us to reflect, uh, to remember, and to worship well uh, as we study your word. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first commandment is, You shall have no other gods before me. This is from verse 3. So the primary idea here, though, is since our God is the one true God, and this is what he's been establishing from the very beginning, even from Genesis 1, chapter 1, that... If he is the true God, then all other gods are imposters, right? They're false gods. But it is right that we worship him and him alone. And it is wrong for us to worship anything else. Now, here's full disclosure. I'm not a Georgia fan. Okay, if you need to leave, now's the time to do it. I'll give you a minute to walk to the door. But I find it interesting as a non-Georgia fan that the week that we're going to talk about idolatry is the week of George's back-to-back national championship. So anyways, what we know to be true, I'm just joking. For the record, I'm a Bama fan, so sorry. You can stone me after church, not during church, okay? Um, It's good to be back. It's really really good to be back. Okay, so here's the point though. All of us, in our very DNA, from the moment that we were conceived in our mother's womb, we were born to be worshipers. We don't need to learn how to worship. We don't need to study how to worship. What we need is to learn who and what to worship. That is where we fail, okay? So seriously, you go to a college football game, you're gonna be surrounded by 100,000 worshipers, all right? And they're there, they're having a good time. Sometimes they've been worshiping from like the night before and they're gonna to continue to worship into the morning the next day and then they're gonna to come to church and try to wipe away those sins. okay? But they know how to worship. We don't struggle worshiping, we don't. And that's the reality what we struggle with is how to worship a good and great God who's worthy alone of our worship. That is where we are as humans in 2023. So we're born to worship, but the deepest issue of our human heart, of every human heart, and from the very beginning, including Adam, was idolatry. What was Adam's idolatry in the garden? It wasn't he wanted to be like God rather than to be With God, right? So when we are worshiping idols of the world, we are choosing to worship a God who's not worthy of our worship. But it's worship in the wrong direction. That's what idolatry is. And idols. I think we live in a world we think that idols are sometimes just like the little images that we put on our mantle, right? I have been in a lot of your homes. I've been in zero dorm rooms though, for the record. So we're good there Um, since I was in college. But uh, I've been in no none of your dorm rooms. Not yet. Uh, I haven't been invited. Um, But I haven't seen any bales, right? I haven't seen any Buddhas. I haven't seen any uh, carven images in your house that you're lighting incense to. That's not the kind of idols that we worship. And yet, our homes are full of idols because we're all worshipers. And idolatry is putting someone, it could be a spouse, it could be a significant other, it could be a job, it could be a boss, it could be a parent... Putting someone or something in the place of God. I'm going to skip ahead to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to get here in, I don't know, a couple of months. But Exodus 34 verse 14 says this. It says, For you shall worship no other god for the Lord, all caps, which is Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The Bible is incredibly clear that Yahweh is not going to share His glory. He's not going to share his worship with another. He's not going to share my life or your life. He's declared over us through Christ that you are mine. That is ultimately the last nail in Christ's flesh was that declaration. You are mine. And he breathed his last, and it was through his death, burial, and resurrection that that declaration becomes true forever. And finally, praise God for that, in and over our Lives, but he will not share his glory with another. He is a jealous God. I remember this has been a number of years ago, an um, uh, interview with Oprah Winfrey, who and maybe some of you have seen this or read about it or heard about it, or maybe we've mentioned it before in another uh, environment. But uh, she said, I, I will never worship a God who'd be jealous of me. And Oprah has literally everything in the world, right? You talk about idols. She has them everywhere. And she's going to give you some idols. Everybody gets a car, right? That seems really cool. Uh, I've always wanted that, but um, hasn't happened yet. But Oprah, you know, her, her, her statement is, I, I would never worship a God who's jealous of me. And here's the clarity, and this is what I wish that I could, like, grab her sweet little face and say, He isn't jealous of you. He is jealous for you. Do you see the difference? He doesn't want your stuff. His stuff is His stuff already. He made it. He also made you, your flesh, your heart, your hair, your lack of hair. He knows who you are and he loves you. So he's not jealous of you, he is jealous for you. John Calvin, you've heard me say this quote a few times, but I'm going to read a little bit more of it than I have in the past. But he says, The human heart is an idol factory, churning out new idols like the conveyor belt on a manufacturing plant, rolling out new widgets. Every day we wake up, we turn on the TV or we w- uh, swipe up on our phone, and what are we hit with? The next idol. The next ad, the next thing that we have to have, and all of a sudden it's like, it becomes overwhelming. Oh, that would be nice. That would make things a lot easier. Or my neighbor might think better of me if I had that thing in the driveway or this phone in my pocket, right? We're bombarded with the threat of idols. But uh, idols, every idol, even from the very beginning, including the idol, as soon as we get the Ten Commandments, what do the Israelites do? They make an idol. Okay? We're going to get there. I shouldn't expect you to know that. But idols, every idol, is birthed from a lie. Every single time. Every idol is birthed from a lie. And they only preach one sermon. You know what it is? It's deceit. And you know what? It's appealing, isn't it? Our world has gotten really good at telling lies like they're truth. And yet there is one truth and is that God is sovereign over all, and in His sovereignty, He decided to save His creation. That's it. That's the one truth. God saves sinners. It's the gospel. All right? The second commandment. We pick this up in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below. So all idols are false gods. The idols that we worship are not sufficient for our souls, okay? So the things that we create, the things that the world create, are never enough to satisfy. Have you ever, we could talk about the Sabbath here in a minute, as being genuine rest. Do you know what keeps you from resting? Your idols keep you from resting. I was an athlete in college, and it was the idol of making it to the next level that kept me from resting. It also, eventually, it took a few years to look back on this, it also keeps you from enjoying the life that God has given you. And I don't mean that to sound like, uh, you know, 21st century like voodoo, but God has created you to enjoy Him. And the idols of the world are distractions that keep us from doing that. What I love about the golden calf is that it it was fashioned, it was carved out of a graving tool. It was the same graving tool that was originally meant to write down truths about who God was on stone. And so they come down off the mountain, Moses and Aaron, with the Ten Commandments, and they take that little graving tool, and what do they do? They create a new God, a little g God that never satisfies. But instead of creating a golden God or a golden calf, they wound up creating a golden lie, and it cost them everything. I've said this before, and it's a little bit of a cliffhanger, and I'm sorry, but I'm really good at cliffhangers and spoiler alerts, but does Moses go into the promised land? He does not. He does not. Because in a moment in his life, he replaced the one true God with a false God. Okay? The third commandment is this, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Now, all God's people said? Amen. All right. This one should be easy. I have more notes on this one than I do on any of the others. So if you have an early lunch, cancel it. (laughs) The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You've heard this before. I mean, I would imagine you're in the room. You've heard all of these before. But you've heard this one, and you think of one thing, and this is going to get me in trouble. My name, my email is uh, gabe at thebranchdahlonega.com. So if you need to send an email, do that. If you're new here, you don't get it, and that's okay. We think that don't take the Lord's name in vain is what? Don't say GD. That's what we think. And then we're like, oh, I'm not saying that, so I'm good. I didn't take the Lord's name in vain. And yet we come to our devotion with a lazy heart. And in our doing so, we've taken the Lord's name in vain. We come here on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so I, I'm going to go back, okay? Okay. Um, this, this one's not in the notes, so this one could get me in trouble. Um, when I was in seminary, Christian school, by the way, good seminary, great seminary, one of the best, I loved it. Uh, I had a professor who actually said the words, the two words that you're not supposed to say, as his example. But he said them in class. Like, he didn't use the initials, he just used the whole thing. And everybody was like, so while I've been getting, you know, I've had, I've had three weeks to get ready for this morning. I was like, should I say it? Should I just do it and see what happens? And then I realized that I liked my job, and I wanted to be here again next week, so I decided not to do that. But that's not what this is about. The focus is not on what you shouldn't do, but on what you should do. It's about taking the name of God very seriously. What should we call you? What is your name? Who should I tell them that you are? I'm Yahweh. I am the great I am. God is to be highly valued and honored with our lips, but not just with our lips, but also with our Lives. So what does that look like? It looks like flippant worship, just showing up on Sunday and going through the motions. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's going to your devotion, like I said, lazily. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's numb community. It's coming and showing up a family group and not participating. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Who gave God his name? God gave himself a name. And only God names himself. I was given a name by my parents who are here. I like my name, it's fine. It's with a PH by the way, it's never a B. My kids got names. We gave them to them. Some of them were hard to name. So same with you. Now you can change your name. That's not your given name. Right? Some people do that out of rebellion, or they do it because of their family arc or their, the trajectory of their story, and they're trying to break free from those chains, and I'm okay with that. But your given name was given to you. You didn't come up with your own name, and yet God does, because he is revealing in his naming of himself his divine authority, his supreme authority, his dominion over all things, and his power. He's the only one who can make dead things, living things, and that's why we're here. We shouldn't take his name falsely, throwing his name around or claiming to be a Christian and not living like one. We shouldn't use his name meaninglessly, without value, without conviction, without courage. We shouldn't use it abusively, right? We see this a lot in the church. Oh, Jesus wants you to do this. Yeah, he might, but you're also manipulating people for your own fame and power. That's a problem. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. Shallow thinking about God always replaces God himself. We can't think of God shallowly because he isn't a shallow God. He sets in his place a fraudulent idol, or we set in his place fraudulent idols of security. Who's graduating in May? Are you scared? We do. We've, we put in God's place these idols of security or sex or wealth, power, religion. You can come to church every Sunday, and this can be your greatest idol. The same professor who said the bad word was the best professor I ever had for the record. He also said, if you let your Bible become an idol, give it back to me. And he cared deeply for the word of God. And we can do that. We can allow our our coming to the word of God to be just this list of like this rote memory thing where we just are going through the motions. And in so doing, we're taking the very precious living, breathing word of God, which, by the way, never returns empty. And we can turn it into an idol. Seminary students are notorious for that. Let's keep going. Fourth commandment. I started my clock really late too, by the way, so I have no idea where we're at. Liam's going to wave at me or throw something up here when it's time to go, okay? I don't know what he said and I don't want to know. All right, the fourth commandment. We have a hard time with this one too. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, All right? We should work and we should rest because we serve a working and a resting God. In the beginning, as he's creating, he is putting this law in motion. He's putting this command in motion motion. He is calling us to reflect his motioning, his working, and his resting. Here's what I love about what Christ does in his life, in, in the, the pivot, right? So, I mean, Christ comes in all of human history that just pivots, right? There's law, 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 law. Christ comes and says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And now, all of a sudden, salvation's a different track, right? But in, this, in the same way, the church then kind of reorients around Sabbath. So in the beginning, God works what? He, he speaks for six days, he creates for six days, and then he rests. And from that point until Christ comes, that's kind of how God's people acted. They worked for six days and then they would rest. They would work for six days, it's, it's basically like, I'm gonna run as hard as I can until I can't, and then I'm gonna crash, and I'm gonna have a day, and I'm gonna rest, and I'm gonna get up, and then I'm gonna keep going and going and going, and then I'm gonna crash. And Christ comes and he puts it, he puts it upside down. Now we rest in order to work. You see the difference? He's still calling us to Sabbath, but instead of working in order to achieve rest, we rest in order to work, because now he's reoriented our priorities. Our priorities are to worship, not to work. Now, you can work in worship, and you don't have to be a worship leader. Thank God I'm not the worship leader, and yet it is my job to stir our hearts in worship, right? So we can go to our jobs, no matter what they are, if you're a teacher or a cop or whatever and you can leverage your vocation for the worship of God that is what we're called to do and so in the sabbath now we are resting this is why the church has historically gathered on sunday the first day of the week unless you have one of those new super modern calendars where monday's the first day of the week like what a bummer sunday's the first day of the week cuz we rest the church comes together we breathe in deeply that's what we're doing when we come together by the way it's just like inhaling together like a collective gasp for air. Because we one, need God, we need his word, we need to worship, we need to sing these songs because there's gonna come a time, Monday through Saturday, where I need to be reminded of the lyrics that we just sang. And then we go out into the world like a, like a slingshot, like a catapult, you know? As soon as we finish here, we cut the cord and all of a sudden it's like Thoof! There's, I don't know how many people are in this room, but all of us are getting you know, shot out into the world. Because now we are taking that worship, we're taking that mission into the world for the good of others. But this, is, this fourth commandment is one that's rooted in creation. We're called to do a few things, though, in the Sabbath. We're called to remember. We're called to remember the Creator and Redeemer. We're called to rest, right? But we're also called to worship. the Sabbath. The Sabbath, practicing the Sabbath points us to a forward future, a forward, a future rest where we finally stand in the presence of God without the pressure of work. Because now we just sing, holy, holy, holy is the word God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is what we are longing for. And as we practice the Sabbath, we are preparing our lives for an eternity of worshiping God the Father, God the Son, and god, the Spirit. The Sabbath is a reversal from creation in Christ. I love it. So there's nothing more dangerous, though, than religious confidence in a fake God. If you were to come here and you're like, why do you go to the branch? I know none of this is true for none of you, but man, the preaching is so good, right? And all of a sudden, the preaching becomes a false God. This is why I don't preach every week. Or if you come because the music is good, and the music's good, if you're coming only because of the music, you're missing. If you're coming only because we do family groups a certain way, we don't do Sunday school, you're missing, right? So there's nothing more dangerous than religion. You've heard me say this too. There's nothing more dangerous to the church than a nominal Christian, someone who just shows up and goes through the motions and is never fully changed by the gospel. But our confidence isn't in a fake God. It's in a resurrected one, one who sent his son to die to bring us back to life. It's a reconciling, it's a redemption. But there are three things that we see. There must be a law giver. Laws don't just create themselves. That's why I don't understand why we're removing the Ten Commandments. Like you do know that like the laws that put people in jail were coming out of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Hello. But they don't like the whole uh have no other gods before me. I get it. But there must be a law giver, okay? There must be a law given, which is what we see here. And there must be a consequence. And throughout Scripture, it says this, and Romans is full of these reminders that all have sinned, which what does that mean? It means that all have broken the law, and the consequence of that law breaking is death. That's why Christ has come, okay? So, there must be a lawgiver, there must be a law given, and there must be a consequence. What is our consequence when we're in Christ? It's freedom. It is life itself. It is the family's dinner table having a seat there. And what's beautiful about the gospel is it's not the cruddy seat. It's the seat of honor. It is Christ's seat, the Son of God. He willingly gives it up, and we get his reward. So how do the Ten Commandments point us to Jesus? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Where is Jesus in the law. Jesus perfectly kept the law on our behalf. This is from Galatians chapter 4, right? He kept it on our behalf so that through His sacrifice, we could receive adoptions. So now I'm a son. I don't deserve to be a son, but I am a son. I'm declared one, and you a daughter or a son. That's what is happening. Christ came to fulfill it, to live it out perfectly. He never took the Lord's name in vain. He didn't kill anybody. He also didn't think about killing anybody. This is what we'll get here next week. So when we go horizontal, Christ goes through all the horizontal commands, and he kind of says, you think you're doing good because you haven't stabbed somebody today. But let me tell you something. Uh, If you thought about your brother with any sort of angst in your heart, you've murdered him. And you're like, whoa, what? You know, and you're like, oh, you're doing great because you haven't cheated on your wife. And yet you're like, we're going to get there next week. I won't do that sermon too because I'm already over on this sermon. But the second thing, how does this point us to Jesus? The righteous requirement of the law was perfection. Okay, if you break one, you've what? You've broken them all. And what is unique about the Ten Commandments is every single one of them is a fracture of the first. Okay? Every single one is a fracture of the first to not have another God before me. But the righteous requirement of the law was perfection, something even the most religious couldn't keep. This is, this is the tension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Christ was amazing. The New Testament is, like, one of the best books ever written. Because you see this, and he, Jesus is like, you know, what you're doing here is wrong. And they're like, no, it's not. I go to church every week, and we do this thing, and I give a ton of money. And, and Christ is like, yeah, but you don't know who I am. All right? Okay, the third is this, and every time in your Bible where you see a three-letter word, B-U-T, I want you to circle it, and I want you to go in, I want you to underline it, and then to come back in with a highlighter, you pick the color, and then highlight it. Because any time we get the word but, something new is coming, right? But now, or but God, right? And this is what we get in Romans chapter 3 or Second Corinthians, that perfect righteousness that couldn't be earned, but now right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but Christ. We were kicked out of the garden, but God came to reconcile, right? We live in a lost and lonely world, but Christ is coming back, and he's going to make all things new, right? This three-letter word is so important, and he is imputed now not just the perfect law, but the keeping of the perfect law, does that make sense? So now we've, we've received that as a gift. And then the last is this. It means that we didn't earn our righteousness. Let's go back into the narrative of Exodus. Okay? Does God give his commands before God releases his people from Egypt? Now, what happens? He frees them first. And then he gives his law. So put that in your life. Do you have to keep the law in order to be saved? No. Now, that's not licensure. Okay, you, you don't get to go do whatever you want. Right? You can't say the, the word that we initialized here. Okay? You can't do that. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't even long to do that, even though sometimes we might, right? But God has called us into this thing now where we are recipients. This is what I love about Christmas with kids. It's like, it, Braden's in the room. He's our oldest. He's eight. From the time he was a baby, he was the best gift receiver of all time. Like you could give him an apple core, put a bow on it, and he would be like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. There's still three bites on it. You know? He's a great gift receiver. And in that, he's, he's modeling what it looks like to receive the gospel. We should be great gift receivers. Why do we love our neighbors who are terrible and park their car in front of our driveway all the time? because I was dead in my trespasses and now I've been brought to life in Christ. Right? That's a silly example, but you get what I'm saying. Why do we do these things? Because we have been given righteousness. We've been given a seat at the table. So this is uh, the, the word of the Lord. Next week we'll pick back up with these horizontal commands or what I will call mission to the world. Right? This is what Christ says. He says, go. Well, how do you go? You go this way. Okay, So we uh, close. If you're new to the branch, I'm going to walk us through this uh, bit for just a second. So if you've been here for a while, just be patient. But um, we end our services, our, our time of worship, by going to the communion table, which is in the back. There's three of them there. And uh, the bread is broken because it's a convenience for you. You're welcome. Um, and, and we dip it in the cup. And while we're doing this, and so just for the record, this is for people who are, who are believers. Like, if you're not a Christian... Uh, couple of thoughts here. I'm not really sure why you'd want to take that. Um, that's not condemnation or judgment, um, but I'm, I, don't underst- I wouldn't understand that. But two is we use this as a time of remembrance. Okay, So if you maybe you're in the room and you're not a Christian. One, we're, we're really glad that you're here. Um, two, we want to invite you to the table, and there's kind of a way to, to do that. And so uh, our elders and some of our staff will be over here um, by the signs where Carmen's standing over there. If you want to come talk to us or if you want to pray, uh, we're there and available for that. But we end our gatherings by taking communion because by doing that, we are remembering to rest. We are remembering to Remember we're remembering, remembering to worship. And so I pray as you go to the table that you will do those things well and that the Spirit of God would fill you up as we go out into the world. It's really glad, uh, good to be back. I'm, I'm very expectant uh, for this year. Uh, I was asked a number of times, like, what are you, what are you thinking? What are you hoping for in 2023? And I'm kind of like, I don't know, but I hope it's all the things, you know. And I'm just, I'm very excited for what God's doing in our midst. And as we continue to invite others in, and God gives us clarity on that, we're going to do it confidently, we're going to do it together, and I'm I'm very, very excited for what he's doing here. So let me pray. I love you. I'm glad that we're back together uh, in this beautiful gymnasium. So let's go before the Lord now in prayer as they come back up and we'll enter into a time of communion. Father, we love you and thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for uh, this place and we thank you most of all for your word and pray that uh, as we reflect on who you are and what you have done, just like uh, Israel looking back into Egypt, you have saved us and it's through that salvation Uh, that we respond to you. And so we respond through worship When we respond through obedience. I pray that you would help us to do that well. I pray for those in the room who uh, might be right there on the fringe of faith. And as we walk over the next couple of weeks through these 10 commandments, I pray that they will find an enormous amount of freedom through Jesus uh, and see his perfect fulfillment of the law that you're giving your people. And, and how we can rest in the work of Jesus, and the work of Jesus alone. And so we pray that you would continue uh, to move mightily among us and uh, fuse us with your Spirit and dwell us with your Spirit. And I thank you for these brothers and sisters. We love you.